0: Hey, if you've got a Bible, turn to Job chapter 42. Uh, we're going to be wrapping up the book of Job today. Um, while you're turning there, I just want to kind of uh, explain something and let you guys uh, in on an opportunity here. On December 11th, we're going to be doing some baptisms. And what we believe about baptism as a church is that it's a public proclamation of the faith that we have in Jesus, that when we go down under the water, we're announcing to the world that there was an old us that had died uh, just as Jesus died, and there's a new us that has resurrected, just as Jesus was resurrected from the grave. And uh, for, for millennia, the command is that we are supposed to go and preach the gospel to everyone and baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so if you're here and you have put your faith in Jesus, but haven't publicly, you haven't made that public by being baptized, we would encourage you to do that on December 11th. Uh, um, It doesn't mean that you're a perfect Christian, it doesn't wash your sins away or anything like that, but it is an announcement and it is a command from Jesus that we're supposed to follow as just sort of a beautiful picture of what he's done for us. So if you have put your faith in Jesus and would like to be baptized, let us know sooner rather than later so we can plan. Uh, We haven't done baptisms with the two services before. So we have to figure out a little bit where those are going to be, what service they're going to be, and and plan things out. And also, we'd love to be able to meet with you, hear your testimony, hear what Jesus has done for you. And so if you are interested in being baptized, or if your kids, you're reasonably sure as parents have put their faith in Jesus, um, they can be baptized too. You could email us at baptism at graceroadchurch.org and we'd be able to uh, interact with you either online or on the phone or in person, and, and talk it all over and get ready for that day. But it's a great day of celebration when we baptize, so we'd encourage you to do that. Uh, we're wrapping up this five-week study through the book of Job today, and it's been a book about this righteous guy named Job who had done nothing more wrong than anybody else around him. In fact, God looked at him and said he was more righteous than other people around him. But with God's permission, the devil took from him his health, took from him his 10 kids, took from him his wealth, his status, his influence. Everything Job had going for him was stripped away in an instant uh, by, by God's permission, by the work of the devil. And so throughout this book, Job is wrestling with this and trying to figure out how that makes sense at all. How there could be a good God who's up there, a God who also claims to be in control, but then all this is happening in his life and it doesn't make any sense. So he wrestles with it, his his friends come and they give some bad answers, and then at the very end, God shows up and he talks to Job. And what we went through last week, God comes and he doesn't answer all of Job's questions with the answers that Job wanted. He answers with the answer that Job needed, which is basically God saying, I'm God. Yeah, I know you don't get this. I know you don't understand it. I know you don't see how it's good. But that doesn't mean it's not good because I'm God and I understand things you'll never understand. And God comes and says things like, I was there when the, I laid the foundations of the earth. Uh, I'm the one giving order to the morning and setting the dawn in its place. I'm in control. I've got this thing totally in my hand so you don't have to worry. You don't have to feel like you've got to be the guy who's in control. Your job as my follower is to trust. So that's God's answer to Job. And then Job talks back in Job chapter 42 verse 1. It says, then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. So let's pray. Uh, Father, we know this is your word and we know that, that you're meaning to tell us something about yourself here so that we can believe more, so that we can repent more, turn from our sin more, and from all the other things that we chase for our happiness and our joy. And so we pray that you would do that in us this morning. Help us to, to know from your word that you're good, to believe it, and to be changed by that. Uh, Lord, I just pray as we talk through your word this morning that you would be impressing on us uh, how good you really are, what a great future you have for us, and how you are in, in perfect control of things. And someday, even though we don't see it now, we will be able to say that it was all very good. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at the end of this ordeal, Job probably is still thinking God's going to kill him. Remember there's a whirlwind coming and the last whirlwind that came through had killed his kids and God comes and speaks to him out of the whirlwind. Job's bracing himself. He's thinking probably that he's going to die and God speaks and gives answers. And one of the things that we don't see in God's answers is an explanation for everything that he was doing. We see an explanation of who God is. So you say, so why is God doing that? But there are a couple things that are going on. Number one, God is teaching us that right beliefs do matter very much. It's important for us to really know who God is and who he's not. And so we try to, as a church, teach a lot of Bible doctrine. And it's not that we say if you have a right belief, you're better than someone who has a wrong belief. It's just that when we say that there are right things and wrong things about God, it's good to believe what's right and what's wrong so that we can have a better and fuller picture of who God is that we can cling to. So it matters very much that we have right beliefs. And you see, Job, even when he's suffering, clinging to what he knows to be true about God, even when he doesn't feel it. Even when he's not experiencing it, even when it's just head knowledge, and he looks around and it doesn't make sense, he clings to his doctrine of who God is. But God wants more than just those right beliefs in us. He wants to be more than a concept that we analyze. He wants a real relationship that goes beyond those concepts. He doesn't want us to be people who just know about God. He wants us to be people who know him. And that's one of the purposes we see in this suffering, where Job goes through all of this and he says, God, I'd heard about you, but now I see you. And in our suffering, God's often doing that same thing. You know, the difference between us knowing facts about God and actually knowing God personally is similar to the difference between being someone's friend on Facebook and being married to them. Like You can can learn a lot about someone by stalking them on Facebook and, and get a lot of details and have a pretty good idea of some things they were thinking this week and some places they've been, But you don't know him like like your spouse. When you get married to someone, you see everything about them. You see all these different elements. It's a completely different relationship. And what God wants is not for him to just be this Facebook friend that we've got, but to be the dominant force in our lives. He wants us to have a real relationship with him, not an online relationship. He wants it to be something that goes deep. He wants us to have a real trust in him. And sometimes when we suffer, that's what he's producing in our hearts. You know, it's one thing to know in your mind, God is enough for people. I know that he's enough. I know that you could lose everything and God would still be enough. It's another thing altogether to actually walk through the darkness and experience that enoughness. To to have God really be enough when you are just on the very edge of giving up your faith altogether when things get so dark and so bleak and so confusing that you're ready to give it all up, you don't even see faithfulness in yourself, but you're able to cling to him, and at the end of it, you're able to say, he was enough for me, he did sustain me. That's a different knowledge of God that you have at that point. And you see this all throughout the Bible. It's not just an Old Testament thing where God says, right in the center of my will, sometimes you'll suffer so that you know me more. You see that in the New Testament too, after the cross. Uh, listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. So Paul here says that in the course of following Jesus, he was burdened almost to the point of despairing of life. He was depressed. He was down. He didn't understand what was going on. Bad things were happening to him. His whole life was being shaken. And he said the reason God allowed our lives to be totally shaken is so that everything that we cling to would be dropped and so that we would trust in God. And sometimes that's what he's doing. Sometimes he allows that suffering in our lives, not as necessarily a discipline for something bad that we've done, but as a way of shaking us so we let go of everything but him and then experience that he's actually enough for us. That's what Paul said happened, and his experience was really similar to Job's. Job's being shaken, everything in his life is up in the air, and at the end of it, he says, God, I know you better now than I did in the beginning." This week, I got an email from Ben Gustafson. He goes to our church. He's at the 9 o'clock service. And he's been studying through Job. And this is what he had to say. I thought he really hit the nail on the head. He said, many of the things that God challenges Job on in chapters 38 to 41 are things that Job himself asserted throughout the book. So God comes and when he talks to Job, he tells Job some of the th- same things about himself that Job had already said about God. Like Job was saying, God's ways are higher than our ways, he's bigger, he's stronger, I don't understand what he's doing, even if I tried, I couldn't. And God comes in at the end and he says, Job, my ways are not your ways, I'm bigger, I'm stronger, you don't understand what I'm doing, even if you tried. So Job's theology, the the facts that he knows about God, they don't change a whole lot in the book of Job. They get tweaked a little bit. But throughout the course of this book, Job gets to know God through the wrestling that he goes through. He wrestles with God. He wrestles with faith. He doesn't ignore those questions that are coming to his mind. And by the way, we shouldn't either. When you start to have those questions and those doubts and you say, I wonder if this whole thing is real, don't just sweep that under the rug and move on. Wrestle with it. Ask those questions. Now don't approach God like you're his judge and that he answers to you, but ask the questions that are hard questions to ask just like Job did because sometimes it's through that wrestling and through that suffering that you actually get to know God better and you get to trust him and some of those doubts do go away. You know, It's like this, you know, even in human friendship, some of the people that we're closest to are people that we have suffered with. You know, I know, like, uh, you know most of the, the stories of this backpacking trip are all legend and made up at this point, but when I was 13 or 14, uh, we went on a backpacking trip with, with a group of guys in the Adirondack Mountains and we almost died. Um, it, was, it was rough. Uh, you know, Hypothermia, helicopter. Um, kind of, there, there wasn't a helicopter, but um, it was, uh, so we were going through, and as these 13, 14-year-old kids, this was the biggest uh, amount of suffering we had ever gone through, and we were suffering together. We were, we were hiking up that mountain, carrying each other's packs, helping each other, thinking we're going to die here together, we're going to be barefoot, and then we survived the thing, and today I'm closer with some of those guys that I went on that hiking trip with when I was 13 or 14 than anybody else. Uh, Even to the point where, if I hear something bad has happened to one in one of their lives, even if I haven't talked to them in a few years, I feel it almost like um, something bad happened to someone in my family. Because when you suffer with someone, you get bonded to them, you get closer to them. I look at our marriage and the times that we got closer, the times that we built more trust were the hard times when we were walking through difficulty and confusion and pain and medical stuff and all kinds of stuff that's come into our lives. Those are the times that Debbie and I really learned to trust each other more. And the people that I know that I'm the closest with are the people that I worked at camp with and spent weeks just suffering together there with them. Uh, The people that I did ministry with, people that I was around when they were confessing big sins and big struggles and, and almost losing their faith. Those are the people that I'm the closest to. And often God's purpose in our suffering is that he wants us to get closer to him in that darkness. That even when he's hard to figure out, which is fairly often, he wants us to actually know him and not just hear about him. So one of the worst things we can do when we suffer is throw the questions away, short circuit it, and just come up with a one-size-fits-all answer for everything that God always does or some cliched answer for why God allows suffering. God wants us to wrestle with those hard questions and not do what Job's friends did. You know, in this series, we've kind of just done, done a thumbnail view of Job, where there's a lot of details we've left out, and we've completely ignored almost everything that his friends have said uh, throughout the course of this story. But his friends basically came and they said, "We have got all figured out. We've got him packaged, and we know that if I do good things, then God will do good things to me, and I will know they're good right in that moment. So if I'm good, I get the good presents under the Christmas tree, and it's because I was good. And there was that one-to-one correlation. If I'm bad." God gives me coal in my stocking and there's a one-to-one correlation between the bad things that are happening in my life and the bad things that I've done. So if your life is bad, you do good things and then God will accept you. If your life is good, it's because you've been good. That was the package of God that his friends had. And God comes and blows that whole thing up in the book of Job. And he says, you know, there are fish below the sea that you'll never see. And I know about them. I know how this earth was made. I know how it holds together. I can take this beast of chaos, the Leviathan, and make him my puppy and tame him. I get stuff that you don't get, so you may never get why you're suffering. That's God's hard answer. And those friends, though, they had him all packaged. They had him all wrapped up. And that's the kind of thing that actually makes God mad in this passage. And every couple of years... um, you know, thanks to the, the blessing of YouTube, we get to see videos of elephants that go berserk at the circus. Have, have you seen this? Like where an, an elephant all of a sudden is, um, you know, he's wearing his little circus hat and he's doing whatever this little tiny guy with a whip tells him to do, standing up on the back of his friends. And then all of a sudden he just says, wait, I'm an elephant. Like, what am I doing? I don't have to do this. And he goes, nuts. And so we get to watch the videos, watch him run down the street, and all these people are just amazed as an elephant goes by smashing stuff because eventually he says, I've got way too much power to just be your entertainment at the circus. And God in this book does not go berserk, but he does come and say, I'm not going to be your trained circus elephant. I'm not going to jump through all your hoops. I'm not going to do everything you want. I'm actually sovereign over you. I've actually got more power over you. And God comes and says, and I act accordingly. Back in verse 7, it says this. It says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves." My servant Job shall pray for you for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer So God's angry when these guys say the wrong thing about him He's okay with Job asking questions He's okay with Job's wrestling and Job's Job's struggles But he's not okay with these guys and their false beliefs that package God and just make that one-to-one correlation between our suffering and the things that we've done in our lives. So he comes and he's angry, but he's a merciful God. He comes and says, guys, here's what we're going to do. You guys go and you make a sacrifice. Make that sacrifice. Let some blood be spilled. Job will pray for you and I'll accept his prayer. And because of that, I'll accept you. So the picture we have here is really a picture of the message of Christianity. And what Christianity says is that we were foolish like these friends. And we thought we had God figured out. We thought, I'm moral enough, so God must accept me. I do enough good things, so God must accept me. We thought we were pretty good people. And God looks at us and says, that's absolute folly. So there's someone who suffered more than Job, someone who suffered better than Job, Jesus Christ, who's the true and better Job, he comes and he offers a sacrifice, which isn't the blood of animals, but his own blood. Jesus prays for us continually so that if we'll trust in him, we have everlasting life. The message of the gospel, the message of Christianity, is that there's a suffering servant who came who was better than Job even, and he suffered to reconcile us to God, not just for this life, but also for the entire life to come. And we get a little picture of that in the story here. Now, in this story, you see God in all of his power, but you also see him in his goodness. I mean, look at some of the stuff he's accomplishing here. For one, Job, who was already a righteous guy, knew about God, but he got to know God. And so God, even in Job's suffering, was pursuing Job and pursuing a relationship with him. So at the end of the book, Job knows God better. Then you look at the friends, and they're the religious moralists, the guys who think they've got God figured out. They think they've got him in a package. They even think they can get God to be their circus elephant. God will do what I want him to do if I do good stuff. And God in his mercy comes and blows up their idea of who God is. He comes and says, no, I'm not that God. I don't fit in that package. You need to actually know me. You don't need to have this pseudo-God that you've got all figured out in your mind. So God in his mercy is going after a relationship with those friends. Now this is something for us to remember when we suffer too, by the way, is God's doing something for us in the suffering, but he's also doing something for other people around us, some stuff that we will never know. Sometimes the way that we go through something and show that God is enough for us, someone on the outside notices and it absolutely changes their lives. Sometimes we go through stuff and we've been to those dark places so that later on we're able to talk to people with some authority who are in those dark places and say, hey, listen, I understand how dark it gets. I know what real doubt is like. I know to wake up feeling like you're not even a Christian anymore because your doubts have gotten so dark and the suffering has been so hard. We walk through that and then we're equipped to minister to other people. I mean, God's not just doing something for us. God is always up to way more than we know when we're going through something. Now the happy ending, verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had seven sons and three daughters. He, he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Habuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters." And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after, jo- after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So at the end of all of it, Job's fortunes are restored and actually doubled. He's got more than he started with. God blesses him so that everything that was taken away is given back to him and more. All of his wealth is back. His influence is back. The Job at the beginning of the book is is not even as good. It doesn't even have the same glory as the Job at the end of the book. At the end of the book, this guy who was as good as dead is resurrected and has this new life, and everything's doubled, everything's happy. And we read this and we say, that reads a little bit like a fairy tale. I mean, it seems a little bit too cheesy of an ending. It seems a little bit too good to be true. So should we believe that this actually happened? Or should we believe that, that this was just a parable? That God just told us this, and it's a nice story, a nice way of God teaching us some of his attributes. So he told us a story that was no different than when Jesus came and said, hey, a farmer went to sow his seed. Um, that probably didn't really happen. Jesus used it to explain some other truth. So is that what Job is? I'd say this. In the book of James, here's what he says in chapter 5, verse 10. He says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So he's saying, here are some guys out there that are good examples, the prophets. And the prophets were real people. They really lived. There was a real Isaiah, a real Jeremiah. Those guys were really there. And then verse 11, he says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So he says, remember those prophets. And then in the next sentence, he's saying, and remember Job. So he's talking about real people here. So so according to the New Testament, when the New Testament interprets the old, it says Job was a real guy, just like those prophets were. So how do you explain this perfect fairy tale ending? How how are we supposed to believe something like that? In fact, why do we even believe the Bible? Because this whole thing, if you follow its whole storyline, it reads like a myth or a legend in the way that it ends up. I mean, this book starts with Adam and Eve. They're in this paradise garden. God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Their whole job is to just garden and breed for, for all of eternity and just kind of make this whole earth a paradise garden where everything's perfect. You, you yank out a weed, it doesn't come back. There weren't, weren't weeds, but you, you go out and everything's perfect. You, you mow the lawn, it doesn't grow back. There's not that frustration all the time. There's just steady progress. So they're in that paradise perfect place, but then a snake comes and they talks to them and they sin and they fall and the whole creation gets twisted. And all of a sudden, everything's broken. Nothing works. It's just like if a house gets racked just a little bit, none of the doors close, none of the windows open right. And that's what our creation's like. Everything is frustrating. Everything's broken. We've had millennia of wars and conflict and pain and death, and then... 2,000 years ago, in on his white horse, comes the hero, Jesus. And he comes, and he's the one guy who's living a perfect life. He's the one who teaches all perfect things. And then he goes, and he dies. And here he is, the ultimate underdog. I mean, he's, he's dead. So his friends are saying, I don't believe in him anymore. They're all going back to their lives. And then three days later, on his white horse again, he comes, and he conquers death. He rises. He promises that he's going to come back. And then you fast forward to the end of the Bible and you see all of creation purified and then this new city coming down. And and God says that in that city, there's no more pain. There, There are no more tears. There's no more sorrow. There's no more sin. There's no more death. Everything, the former things have passed away. All things have become new. We read that and we say, that's just another fairy tale. That's just another myth. It's just like any other story is a myth. So why should we believe this one? This was actually a struggle that C.S. Lewis had. Uh, Before he put his faith in Jesus, he looked at the story of the Bible and he said, it just reads like any other fairy tale. When there are other stories out there, other great books and myths and legends that we've read, and we like them, they capture our hearts, but ultimately they're lies. We know that Charlie never actually got the chocolate factory like that didn't happen, we know Beowulf didn't actually slay that monster and become a king, we know that Neo didn't defeat Agent Smith, like these are all just stories that we, we like and we crave and we listen to, but then we come out of the theaters and squint our eyes and drive home into our real world, the story was just a way for us to divert ourselves for a little while and escape the reality that is our lives. So why would we say that Christianity is anything different? And C.S. Lewis said it's really just another popular story that's captured people's hearts. We like these stories, we crave them, but, but they're lies. And just like Beowulf didn't slay, slay the monster, Jesus didn't rise from the dead. So why should I believe this Christian story? We had a friend, uh, J.R. Tolkien, and they were walking along the river smoking their pipes, and Tolkien said, you know, there's another explanation for why Christianity reads so much like all of these other myths. He said, there's a reason that our hearts crave all of these stories. I mean, there's no denying that people crave stories where death is conquered, sin is defeated, heroes come and rescue us. We, we love those things. We spend tons of money on those books. We go to movies and we'll spend $10 to watch that. And four times that if you buy the popcorn. And we do, we do this because we're hungry. We're hungry for a story like that, and you wonder why it is. You know, why do we want a story where love is eternal, where a hero rescues, where enemies are defeated? Why does our heart crave that kind of thing? Why do we want to hear those? Why is it that every 14-year-old girl in America is going to watch the story of vampires who overcome adversity and have babies and go off and live happily ever after? Like why? Every 14-year-old girl and my wife. Um, just, just you know, she was here at the nine o'clock service, but. Um, and she went last night to see the movie with two other elders' wives at Grace Road. So, um, special meeting this week. We're going <laughs> to we have an intervention. Um, so, so there are these stories out there and we just like them, we crave them. And what Tolkien said is there's actually a reason for that. And the reason is, our hearts were made for a better story. Our hearts were made for a rescuer We know that things are broken here. We know they're not the way they should be. We know that we're going to lose everybody we love. We know that at times it seems like sin and evil win. And the reason that we crave all these stories where it's not like that is because there's this one true story that our hearts were made for that our craving for stories points to. So while it's true that Christianity does read like a lot of those other stories and a lot of those other myths, it's actually more true to say those myths and those stories, they read more like Christianity. They actually point to a longing and an ache in our heart. And what Tolkien said is that Christianity is the one true myth that all of those other myths, all those other longings point to. It's it's like that familiar smell that reminds us of something. for, For me, I grew up every summer when I was a teenager working at camp. And so there were campfires burning all the time, no matter what. Um, it was 100 degrees outside, and for some reason there were fires going because it was a guy's camp and something had to be burning. And so, um, so I always, anytime I smell a campfire, I'm brought back to those memories of working at camp and all those great summers when I was a kid. And so I smell that, and it's just a happy smell because of this familiar memory that it brings back. And what C.S. Lewis started to believe and what I think we need to believe is that all these stories that we see, the reason we love them is because they're a little bit of a familiar smell. Like there's something about that that reminds us of a different reality and it's the reality our hearts were made for. Our hearts were made for that one true story, that one true myth, that one true rescuer who Jesus is and we love those stories because it's like him. It's something like that one true story. And so when that, when that hit C.S. Lewis, he went from being what he called a happy agnostic to one of the most reluctant converts in all of England. Because he said, I get it now, Christianity is that true myth. All The existence of all those other myths, it doesn't disprove Christianity, it actually does something to prove it. And at that point he believed, and the truth is we should believe too. You know, as God's people, we're living as part of the greatest story ever told. And it, it sounds too good to be true this new creation, Jesus coming back, we don't see that stuff happening every day. We just see the middle part where there's adversity and there are enemies and it seems like they're winning. The underdog hasn't finally come back and done the huge work yet. So it's hard for us to believe in a fairy tale ending. But just because we don't see it every day doesn't mean that it's not coming. There's coming a day for us as Christians when that resurrection happens for us and it's going to be better than Job's resurrection here. We, it's not just going to be we get temporary wealth and temporary health and then die old and full of, of years. It's going to be life forever. Sin conquered, our enemy conquered, our doubts gone, no more need for cynicism, no more need to, to, for disbelief because we'll actually be there in paradise for all eternity. It sounds too good to be true but our longing for stories that aren't true just points to that one true one that's at the, at the bottom of everything. We're longing for that resurrection that is coming for God's people. There is coming a day where everything that's chaotic in this creation gets tamed, where in the book of Revelation at the end you see a lion laying down with a lamb, where he takes the untamable and tames him, where he takes Leviathan and makes him his pet, and then for all eternity we worship that God, live on that perfect earth, and live out the ending of that fairy tale, for Christians it's coming. And when we suffer, that should give us hope. Because God has done even a little more for us than he did for Job. He showed us more of what the ending is. He showed us that there is coming that time of restoration. Everything that is broken is going to be fixed. We will be with him for all eternity. We can have confidence in that as Christians. And so we actually have a leg up on Job when we suffer because we know more of God, we know more of the story than anyone has ever known. So That's good news. It's good news that the God who showed his power and showed his might, also at the end of the story showed his goodness and promises he's going to do the same thing for us. There's an excellent book uh, John Piper wrote called The Misery of Job and the Mercy of God. And you can download it for free at desiringgod.org, but it's a PDF. And it's an epic poem, kind of retelling with some imagination this whole story of Job. And at the end of this story, this this is how he sums it all up. He says, Behold the mercy of our king, who takes from death its bitter sting. And by his blood, and often ours, brings triumph out of hostile powers and paints with crimson earth and soul until the bloody work is whole. What we have lost, God will restore that and himself forevermore when he is finished with his art, the quiet worship of our heart. When God creates a humble hush and makes Leviathan his brush, it won't be long before the rod becomes the tender kiss of God. So we're called to read this story, to look at our lives and recognize that times we'll suffer too, but it won't be long until we're able to see how even those things that looked like God punishing us, even those things that looked bad, were God's goodness to us. That's good news. This story has a happy ending. This story has a happy ending. And if we put our faith in Christ, our story has a happy ending. And I know when we go through it, it's hard to believe. But it's true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story that you have made us a part of by your grace and mercy. Lord, we deserve the suffering that Job got, and we deserve nothing but that for all eternity. We've sinned, we've fallen short of your glory. But Lord, you you didn't want to only display your power to us. You wanted to display your love to us. You wanted to be merciful. You wanted to forgive. And so we praise you for that. We, We praise you that you came as a loving and powerful and as a merciful God. So God, I pray that you'd help us to be changed by our belief in this story. Help us be changed by our belief that a resurrection is coming and that we have not only a powerful God, but a good God. And God, I pray that you would deepen our love for you make us worshipers of you. And Lord, as we suffer and as the folks in our church suffer, I pray that what we would cling to is that knowledge that you are in control, you are good, and there is a resurrection coming. Father, we worship you for working all things together for our good, for glorifying yourself in all things. And at the end of everything, you've got the crown, we've got the joy, and your people worship you for eternity. We know that you're good and we'll work all that out for our good and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I know that there are people here today who probably have not yet put your faith in this God, um, and we're glad you're here. We're glad that there are people among us every week who are just kind of exploring what Christianity has to say, exploring this Jesus thing, but I would encourage you, if, if you're just starting to feel drawn to this message, drawn to this truth, to turn to God and, and to do it today, to confess your sins, and to turn to Jesus and recognize that you can't do anything to earn God's approval, to earn his favor. You can't do anything to earn a good spot in that eternity. All you do is recognize your own brokenness, your own sinfulness, and then trust Jesus. Trust that he died to pay the price that you should have paid. Trust that he was buried and he rose again. And then cry out to him for mercy. Because the Bible promises that not only is he a God who's just and strong and even terrible at times, but he's a God of love and mercy and of all those who come to him, he won't lose one. So if today you're feeling drawn to that, then, then just not in any special words, but just say, Jesus, I know that I'm sinful. I know that I've fallen short. I know I've broken your commands. But Jesus, today I'm trusting in your mercy trusting in your cross your death your burial your resurrection and trusting that that was for me to pay the price that I should have paid I'm crying out to you for forgiveness and if that's where the cry of your heart is where today you're putting your faith in Jesus I'd encourage you to announce it to everybody by just getting baptized and, um, and celebrating that together with our church family if you have questions about that please um, stick around after church I'd be happy to talk to you I know probably the people who brought you would if you'd rather do something in email we could email and talk to you uh, if you want to get together during the week. Uh, our biggest concern is that our people in our church would, would know and love Jesus. And so wherever you are in that journey, whether you're a skeptic, a cynic, whether you're someone who's been a believer for 30 or 40 years and just deepening your journey, we want to help you on that. So please let us know how we can. Let us know um, what what you need, what, what you need prayed for, what you need to learn, uh, how, you, how you're struggling. We're happy to help you. Uh, tell the people in your grace group. Tell one of our pastors here and we'd be happy to help you along that journey because we're all on it. We're all trying to go deeper in our faith in God even at times when it's tough to do and even at times when he doesn't make sense. But as we journey together our faith gets increased, our joy gets increased, our hope gets increased so that every time we suffer we're able to look forward to something better that's coming. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you again for this great picture of your glory and your goodness and love. And God, I pray as we worship you that these wouldn't be just songs that we sing, but prayers that we pray in awe of your majesty and in wonder of you. And I pray this in Jesus' name.